0: Well, it's wonderful to see all of you here, and we are blessed uh, in our congregation with such a mixture of uh, ages and different kinds of people from different walks of life. This is truly the body of Christ in so many ways, and people that have different positions and dispositions, and we all come together to worship. See that? See that? And uh, what's really fun is looking around and seeing different people coming back. Candy Rieger, one of our missionaries, came back. Cease Neimanen, one of our former staff, came back. Nell Smith and Ora, uh, original members of St. Luke's, came back. And it's just fun to look around and see some of the people who have come back for this wonderful celebration. But I have a question for you. And some of you, this question won't apply, so you can go to sleep for a minute. Especially the younger ones. Where were you 50 years ago? Now, I'm not talking today, okay? That might be too far of a stretch for some of you. But where were you 50 years ago, generally speaking? I think I was in second grade. So I actually do have memory of 50 years ago. Nathan... He wasn't even a thought in his father's mind at that point. (laughs) But I mean, 50 years ago, think about all that's happened in the last 50 years. It's amazing to think about. The changes in transportation. I mean, when I was in second grade, I didn't even know what air conditioning was. Now it's hard to live without, right? The technology, cell phones, push-button phones. Back then it was rotary phones. What? The changes in television, the changes in computers. I mean, it's just amazing to think about the changes that have taken place in the last 50 years and transportation included in all of that. But 50 years ago, this Christmas Eve, St. Luke's, the parish St. Luke's, had its first worship on this site in this building. Now, the building didn't look quite like this at that point. Because back then, a group of less than 100 people built a sanctuary that could seat somewhere between 250 and 300 people. Think of that. Think of that. That people thought ahead. That 50 years ago, St. Luke's had already gone through so many changes through the years that this was a reestablishment in so many ways. And if you look at the history in the narthex, and you'll see the history later on a video, how this parish had changed, has changed, down through the centuries. Do you know the first St. Luke's that was on the mainland, that eventually was brought here, and reestablished as a parish, started in 1767. Did you know that? Before the Revolutionary War. Is that amazing? I was not alive back then. And then in 1788, on the island, was the Zion Chapel of Ease, which again was the forerunner, and the chalices that we use every Sunday go back to the Zion Chapel of Ease. That's how old these are that were made in the eighteen hundreds we have a history we have a heritage that people years ago spent an effort and vision and time and resources to establish what we've been blessed with today and they passed on and changes have taken place over that time some of them great changes some of them challenging changes At times, this place has survived, and at times, it's thrived in its history. But one of the questions that I often think about, and someone at the early service came up to me and asked afterwards, who named this St. Luke's, and why? Do you ever think of that? Who named this church St. Luke's, and why did they name it St. Luke's? I'd love to know that. Now, if you think of Luke, the person that we see in scripture, who wrote the gospel, who wrote the acts of the apostles, who was a traveling companion of Paul, who was a physician, maybe they thought initially that this would be a healing place for people's lives, that it would bring people the message of salvation of Jesus Christ and bring eternal healing and spiritually, emotionally. Physically, that people would find healing and restoration. Maybe that's what they had in mind. But Luke was a gospel writer. He was a witness. He traveled. He was an historian. So in many ways, when you think of Luke and what this parish represents, hopefully we embody some of those characteristics, some of those traits, and we carry it forward. And when you hear the name Jesus, and what was said about Him, and what was spoken about Him, and what was spoken over Him, and what that means. I mean, did you hear the readings, first of all, from Isaiah chapter 42? What was said about Him? Here is my servant, so Jesus came as God's servant. My chosen in whom my soul delights, which we hear about in the Gospel reading. These were spoken about him 700 years before he was born. A a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He was a caring, gentle, meek soul, which we see in the person of Jesus. One of the two people in the Bible that was called meek. He will not grow faint or be crushed, Until he's established justice on the earth. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I've taken you by the hand and kept you. I've given you as a covenant to the people. A light to the nations. Which Simeon then would speak over him. Lord you now have set your servant free. To go in peace as you have promised. For these eyes of mine have seen the Savior. Whom you have prepared for all the world to see. A light to enlighten the nations. And that was spoken over Jesus. Jesus. John the Baptist spoke over Jesus. That I baptize you with water, but he's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That we would be excited and enthusiastic about our faith, that we would take it out into the world. And God the Father spoke over his Son This is my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved. That when Jesus went to be baptized, He was our forerunner. That as we go to be baptized, that's what God wants to speak over us and into our lives. This, you, are my beloved. Do we really understand? Do we really understand what God has in mind for us? What His desire is for us to experience by His grace, by the gift of His Son for us. The words that were spoken over you at your baptism, either because you said them, or because someone said them for you, that Jesus would be your Savior and Lord, that you would grow in His grace and love, that you promised to follow and obey Him as your Lord. And what was prayed over you Will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers? That was said by your godparent or by you for your future. A word spoken over you. A word spoken into your life. Will you persevere in resisting evil and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? And then we pray, deliver them, O Lord, from the way of sin and death. Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? I will with God's help. That was said over you and about you, much like Jesus. Words spoken over Him and about Him. Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbors yourself? Will you strive for justice and peace and respect the dignity of every human being? That's what we have in Jesus Christ. That's the word that was spoken over you. That's the word that was spoken into your life that was meant to take hold. You know, when things were said about Jesus, if you consider the prophecies and His apostles and His disciples, they were wonderful words. They were words of truth about His person, about His ministry, but His detractors said terrible things about Him. Falsehoods. You know, I guarantee you, if you talk to people in this church and in this community, some are going to say, well, Greg's a really nice guy. Well, do you really know him? I mean, do you know this about him? You know, you're going to find both sides about me. And some of them are going to be true, and some of them aren't going to be true. See, what was said about Jesus in the Old Testament, was, what, what was said about Jesus by the apostles and disciples was true. Jesus came to bear truth. But you'll always find both. You know, back when I was in between college and seminary, right after I was married, I had my first real job. I sold insurance. I bet some of you did not know that. And it was interesting what happened to me. They had great hopes for me, and I worked for a company that didn't even work on a draw. They were willing to pay me a salary for a year. I couldn't believe it, whether I produced or not. And I was amazed by that. And so I went to work and I was very enthusiastic and I you know, took pride in my job and I enjoyed it and everything. And then when I started pushing for the sale and people would say, well, are you going to be there to service me? And I said, well, honestly, I don't know how long I'm going to be here because my goal is to be in seminary and to become a minister. And my boss said, you can't say that. Well, see, I couldn't lie. I was not about to lie to people that were my friends and my family that I was pitching them on this insurance company, even though I believe insurance is a good thing and I still do, especially fire insurance. But I really think that I came to a crisis of conscience. And finally I said to my boss, after six months of doing it, I can't do this anymore because I'm not going to be there to service the people that I'm trying to sell, people that I love and care about. And I'll never forget what Sam said to me at that point. He said, if you quit at this, you'll be a quitter all your life. I didn't believe him. Sidebar, this spring I will have been ordained 30 years and I've been at this parish over 22. I don't think I'm a quitter. Thank you. Those were words spoken over me that weren't true, but they hurt. He called me a week later and said, Greg, let's have lunch. Went out to lunch together, and he said, Greg, I didn't believe what I said. That's what we're taught in management school, to keep good people. He said, I think you're going to make a great minister someday. That was truth. Fast forward another job I had in between seminary, or college and seminary. I worked for a college for a couple of years. And my boss... Brought me in for an evaluation and I thought he was going to tell me how brilliant I was, what a great job I was doing, what a hard worker I was. And he said, you know what you bring to this job? And I said, no, what? He said, you make work fun. That's a strange comment. But you know, I thought about that and I thought, I hope I do that the rest of my life. Because what he was saying in between the lines is, I'm a joyful person and I bring that joy with me. That's what I want people to think about me. What is spoken over you? What is spoken about you? What do you live into because it's truth? And what don't you live into because it's falsehood? But let me ask one other question. Truth is, has been spoken over you. Like at your baptism. If you have professed Jesus as your Savior and Lord, is that truth for your life? Do you really understand what God has in mind for you? That when He sent His Son to die on a cross in your place for your sin, that desires to be your Savior and Lord, that that's meant to be truth for your life, and you're meant to live into that. That that's your name. Christian. Christian. The Word God wants to speak over you and in you. Word. The Word. Words are so important. What was spoken about Jesus in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you understand the reference, that means Jesus was the creative force at creation. He was God's power moving in the world. He was God's power already laying the foundation for life and for changing lives. And then the Word became flesh, John 1.14, full of grace and truth once again. The Word became flesh because Word, taking life, means a transformation, means a change, means you bring it into your life and live it. Full of grace and truth. That's the Word that speaks about His life. He lives with grace. He offers grace, a gift from God. He wants you to know truth. Not falsehood. God's truth for your life. Words are so important. In fact, how do you have a relationship without words? How do you build that relationship? Because you're communicating through words that you say and words that you live. How you live your life, you communicate. That's how you come to know someone. It's through words, through communication. That's how you build relationships. God wants to speak His Word into your life to change you, to build that relationship. And we need to grow in the knowledge and love of Him through His Word that speaks into our life. Word is important Do we understand Jesus to be the Word? To live the Word? To be the Word by what He says and by what He did, Word and deed. That's what He wants for us. And it has to be true. How do you build a relationship without truth? And you know, people love to say, well, that's your truth and that's your truth and everybody can have their own truth. That's not true. especially when they totally disagree with one another. And Jesus said, I am the way and truth and life. And what was spoken over him was the word became flesh full of grace and truth. And in order to have an honest relationship, in order to have an ever deepening and intimate relationship, you need truth. And that's what he came to bring in His Word, and in the Word incarnate that He lived. But once again, it wasn't just about what He said. It's how He lived. It's Word and deed, that the life bears out the Word. And that's why this life that we are called to live requires work. What relationship doesn't require work, right? Marriage requires work if it's going to grow and deepen. Parenting your children requires work, right? (laughs) I mean, it's great. I'm not saying it's not great. But it requires work. And tears. And sweat. And sometimes blood. You know, isn't it interesting... That when Jesus became flesh, He became a carpenter's son. He didn't become an aristocrat. He became a carpenter's son and He worked with wood. And He worked with His hands and He worked hard. And isn't it interesting that this carpenter worked out our salvation on the hard wood of the cross? That that would come to play later on in His life. That Jesus, as he would say, came to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Costly love, sacrificial love, work, giving. Why is it that we think that faith should just be about osmosis? Require no effort on our part? That we're not striving to grow in that relationship with the Lord every day, much like a marriage. That we're not striving to serve as He served. We love to talk about doing what Jesus did, but what does that really mean? See, because this Christian life is also about doing. Jesus came to teach, to preach, to heal. All of that requires Doing. That salvation, our salvation, required him going to the cross, doing, dying, laying down his life. And how are we responding with our lives? Is it really about other people doing the work? Is it really just about sitting, not responding? not growing. If you really understand that what God wants for us is relationship, and relationships that are deepening require work and change and transformation. And when we're called to serve, that means that we are investing ourselves in the lives of others, in His church, in the world, serving. That Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give His life. We're called to work. And part of the work is witnessing. That we are witnessing to other people by our life and by our words, just like Jesus did. That a witness, when a witness goes to a courtroom, testifies... That requires the person speaking. That when we listen to each other, share our testimony. That's also an involvement, a witnessing of sorts. When someone's married, we ask if people are going to support this couple, those who witness these vows. When we're in a baptism, we ask those who witness these vows that you're going to invest yourself. And that when we witness with our lives, we are reaching out in word and deed, we're witnessing much like the witness at Jesus' baptism came physically with a dove and verbally with the words of God, this is my Son, the Beloved. That God, when He came to do His work in us through the power of Jesus Christ and the cross, sent the Holy Spirit to do a work in us so that we might be witnesses. See, it all goes hand in glove. That that's what God's desire is is for us. And words have power. Words have power. The power to hurt, the power to heal. Words have power. The power to change your life. Let me read to you from the scriptures about words. This is from Romans chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. See, this belief comes into our hearts. And we speak it with our lips. That means we want this to be true for our lives. And then God does a work in us because we've spoken it because words have power when we mean them. goes on to say, But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? That's us. That's us. That's what people 50 years ago did in this place so that this church could survive and eventually thrive. That we speak the truth. That we share the gospel. That we reach out in Jesus' name for salvation. It's the witness of the early church. It's the witness of the apostles. And it's our witness. Because we speak. You know, every Christmas, New Year break... One of my practices since I've been here, and one of my goals, is to visit every household of people that are in retirement communities that aren't able to get here, nursing homes, in their homes, and no longer able to get here. And we're really talking about 40 visits or so, plus or minus. And I love visiting my people. People, many of them I've known for the whole time I've been here. Over twenty two years. One of the couples that I visited this time was Bob and Roxanne Berta. Now I don't know that many of you know the Bertas at all. They've been married over seventy years. They're in their nineties. And I just love Bob and Roxanne. First of all, they have roots in Pittsburgh. Very important. But on top of that, I've been intertwined in their family. Meredith and I have had dinner with them. Their kids, when they've come to town, we've been together. One, one of their kids in particular, he and I, when he'd come to town, we'd have breakfast every time. And that kid, several years ago, died of a heart attack. And I buried him. So I've been close to the Burtis over the years. I called them up, said, want to come visit you. They said, we'd love to have you. Our kids are here. And I said, oh, don't let me bother you during family time. And they said, are you kidding? They'd love to see you. So I went over and we sat around and there were their two other children with their spouses and Bob and Roxanne. We just had a wonderful visit. But I noticed the one son-in-law, Steve, had kind of a really funny boot on, you know, not like your normal boot that you walk with, that you see Kathy walk with periodically. (laughs) You know, and he was walking with a cane. And I said, Steve, what happened? And he said, well, I fell off of a ravine doing yard work. I fell about 25 feet. And I tore up all the ligaments and joints in my one foot. All the toes were just totally out of place. I couldn't walk. And when I put any pressure on it, I walked with pain. He said that he went to a couple of different doctors and finally found one who was willing to do the surgery. And it was six hours of surgery the first time and subsequent surgeries. And he said, I might never get out of this boot. He said, but I can walk and I can walk without pain. He said, but it was really interesting because I walked into the doctor's office. There was a a plaque on the wall That someone had given to him. And the plaque said, honor the work. Honor the work. In other words, do what you need to do. To get yourself back. The therapy. Do what you need to do to take care of it. Honor the work. Do we honor the work. Do we honor the work that Jesus did on the cross for our salvation? Do we honor the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives? Do we honor the work of those who have paid a price down through the years for our salvation? Parents and teachers and Sunday school teachers and elders. Do we honor the work that the people who built this place did for us honor the work. God says to you at your baptism, This is my beloved child. Do you honor the words? Because it's in honoring the words and honoring the work and honoring the witness of those who have gone before that our lives are transformed for all eternity and we need to do the same for the future generations of this church please bow with me in prayer As you're bowed in prayer, one thought that I have for you. Honoring the work does not mean that you earn your salvation. For salvation is a gift through the one who gave his life for us, Jesus Christ. Honoring the work means that we've received that gift, that we've understood that gift, that we've opened that gift for our own lives, and we seek to offer this gift to other people. That's honoring the work. Lord, I pray this day that as we celebrate 50 years of this church in this place, 50 years of the word being proclaimed, 50 years of work and sacrificial service, 50 years of witnessing that we would honor the work. Lord, that we would honor the work that you gave us at creation, your handiwork, when you made this world and you made us. That we would honor the work of the hard wood of the cross when you died for us and won our salvation. That we would honor the work when you sent your Holy Spirit to bring fire to our hearts and change our lives. Lord, help us to honor the work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.